0: Scripture lesson this morning, Exodus chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and speak to him. Thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them, behold, the hand of Yahweh will come with a very severe pestilence on your livestock which are in the field, on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the herds, and on the flocks. But Yahweh will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and all the livestock of Egypt so that nothing will die of all that belongs to the sons of Israel. And Yahweh set a definite time, saying, Tomorrow, Yahweh will do this thing in the land. So Yahweh did this thing on the morrow, and all the livestock of Egypt died. But of the livestock of the sons of Israel, not one died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, there was not even one of the livestock of Israel dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would continue to instruct us from this second book of the Bible as we continue to study uh, the, the ten plagues upon Egypt. Guide us and direct us now in the truth. May your spirit help us to see, to hear, and to understand this your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Are you getting at all bored with the plague accounts at this point? Are, are they starting to feel a, a little bit monotonous? particularly given the fact that Pharaoh's not budging at all, that he continues to harden his heart. Furthermore, you know the story. You know what's going to happen, and that it isn't until the tenth plague that Pharaoh finally relents, and here we are only at the halfway mark with number five. Well, hopefully you're not wearying of our study of of the plagues, but there is something to the fact that we, we hear similar details from week to week or within the respective cycles And nothing really seems to change, as it were. But if we stop and think about it, doesn't that reflect to a degree the experience of the plagues and how things must have seemed or felt to Moses and Aaron, maybe to the Israelites or even the Egyptians themselves? And of course, things are being dragged out on account of Pharaoh's stubbornness and sin, and and maybe that's instructive as well. But we should also recognize how Yahweh is dealing with this tyrant and the ways in which that can also direct our faith. The death of the livestock is the fifth plague and is the second plague in the second cycle of plagues. You will recall that the cycles are plagues one through three, four through six and seven through nine. And the, the fact that this is the second plague in the second cycle means that there is a certain emphasis of the plague particularly or uh, particularly affecting or being against the land, which is what we find in this account. And how are the second plagues of the respective cycles introduced? Well, just as we heard with Yahweh's command to Moses, go to Pharaoh. Also, we do well to take note of what is and isn't said and even how the narrative is presented. You know, what's the most time spent on? What gets the most ink? Yahweh's instruction to Moses about what to say to Pharaoh. Once again, certain details are left out and intentionally so. And we as the reader are to be smart enough and paying attention enough to fill in some of those details by this point. Verse one sounds plenty familiar. And said Yahweh to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and speak to him. Thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, Send out my people and they may serve me. As we just noted, the command to go to Pharaoh sets in motion the events of the fifth plague. Also notice how Yahweh identifies himself in this instance as the God of the Hebrews. Well, who are the Hebrews? Well, the people of Israel, uh, the people that uh, Egypt is oppressing, as, um, as that designation is used a number of times in the opening chapters of Exodus. And recall that it's a derivative of the name Eber, one of the sons born in the line of Shem, as we read about in Genesis 10. And then later in Genesis 14:13 we encounter the title Abram the Hebrew. In Genesis 40, when Joseph interprets the cupbearer's dream and asks him to mention him to Pharaoh, he also includes, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. More specifically in Exodus, Yahweh uses the appellation God of the Hebrews in 318 when giving instruction to Moses at the burning bush. And then again in chapter 5 where this exchange takes place. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey in the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with a sword. Most recently, we find God of the Hebrews used in chapter 7, verse 16, when Moses and Aaron are sent to Pharaoh early in the morning by the water to announce the first plague. And you shall say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. So Yahweh is specifically the God of the Hebrews. He's he's distinct from the gods of the Egyptians and clearly identifies himself with his people even his priestly people, being from the line of Eber, the line of Shem, the priestly line in the early chapters of Genesis. So the familiar message and command is to be delivered to Pharaoh to send out Israel in order for them to worship. But then Moses is to add the following in verses 2 and 3. And if you refuse to send out and are still prevailing upon them, behold, the hand of Yahweh will be upon your livestock which are in the field. Upon the horses, upon the donkeys, upon the camels, upon the herds, and upon the flocks, a very severe pestilence. Now there are a number of interesting details that begin to emerge in the language that's used. Uh, The word I've rendered prevailing and several translations render hold them can, can also be translated retain. And the idea is that Pharaoh won't send them out. But it's also a form of the same word used on other occasions of Pharaoh strengthening or hardening his heart. Interestingly enough, a form of this same word is also used back in chapter 4 and verse 4 of Moses stretching out his hand and taking the serpent by the tail. So perhaps the imagery is that the strengthening of Pharaoh's heart against Yahweh's command, his hard heart leads him to keeping Israel caught in his grasp of exercising his strength over them. But then what's going to happen? Well, the hand of Yahweh will be at work. And by now you surely remember that the hand relates to, to power... And so Yahweh is going to exercise his power against the livestock in the field with a very severe pestilence. This word for pestilence is, is the one we encountered back in chapter 5 and verse 3, read just a moment ago. And there appears to be a bit of wordplay going on throughout this pericope in this account of the fifth plague. In Hebrew, this term pestilence has, has three consonants that transliterate to D, B, and R and would be pronounced something like debar. Well then, well back in verse 1 when Yahweh tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and speak, the Hebrew verb that uh, there has the same three consonants and would sound something like debar. Now maybe you're thinking so what? Well, there's more. Even though we haven't gotten there yet, at the end of verse 4, the word that's used there also has the same three consonants, but with different vowel pointings and sounds like dabar. And then it's used again in verses 5 and 6 and can be translated thing or word. And so the use of of three words that all sound the same creates this wordplay, but particularly a pun on the word for pestilence between verses 3 and 4 and into verses 5 and 6. This might be more information than you really want, but even this relatively brief text is intentionally written and reflects a level of mastery, and the total number of uses of the words with the same root consonants is five. Well, time and time again, we've addressed the theme, who's got the power? And Yahweh continues to demonstrate His power and authority with the word, even the word of the pestilence, this thing that He brings to pass. Well, there are a few more details to consider in verse 3. And notice that the pestilence will be specifically directed against the livestock which are in the field. In the third plague, the gnats were reported also to be upon the livestock. And the fact that it's the livestock which are in the field is a bit more specific. Of course, the field is an area of labor for man, as we know from Genesis. And so this plague is directed against Egypt's economic productivity. Furthermore, livestock would consist of domesticated animals, animals that would be used by man for various modes of labor. And did you happen to count the livestock listed when Yahweh says, "Upon the horses, upon the donkeys, upon the camels, upon the herds, and upon the flocks." That's a total of 5. So keeping with the power-related theme in our text, and so the hand of Yahweh will be displayed against the fivefold li- livestock Of Egypt. And it's interesting to consider how the various livestock would have functioned in that society or been used by the Egyptians. Horses are associated with warfare in Scripture. And of course, we'll later read about Pharaoh's chariot army, which would require horses to pull those chariots. Donkeys are beasts of burden, they're pack animals, would have been used for transportation, not only for people, but for transporting goods from one place to another, particularly locally. We should probably be uh, more surprised by the mention of camels than we are, since uh, after the book of Genesis, they appear with greater infrequency. But we're right to associate camels with Egypt's ability to conduct international trade. camels, Camels can travel long distances and over deserts. And so camel caravans would have gone out of Egypt with various goods to other nations... And been, imported to their, uh, and been important to their economy, even as Egypt was, you know, was a breadbasket and was a prosperous nation. And of course, we often associate the Magi from the east coming on camels to see Jesus, and that's reasonable. Even as we read in Isaiah's prophecy, "...a multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord." In Genesis 24, Abraham's servant uh, takes a camel caravan to go find a wife for Isaac, encounters Rebekah at the well, and she waters all of the camels. And then what is Rebekah riding when she uh, goes back with the servant and then meets uh, Isaac for the first time? Well, she rides a camel back. The highest concentration of the mention of camels in Scripture is found in Genesis 24. Or you may recall from Genesis 37, when Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers, having, having thrown him into the pit, we read, They sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. So again, a pestilence killing camels would have greatly affected Egypt's ability to transport goods long distances. The herds would have included cattle. Um, who were held as sacred in some sense, and even Isis, queen of the gods, bore cow's horns on her head. Flocks, such as sheep, are also in view, though Egyptians disassociated themselves with them to some degree, though perhaps still using some of the products derived from them. But regardless, the judgment would come upon these five forms of Egyptian livestock in the field. And then in verse 4, we hear a similar difference. In the rhythm of the text, which we also heard last week. And Yahweh will cause to be distinct between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, and will not die from all before the face of Israel a thing. Again, thing and pestilence sound very similar in Hebrew, and so the pun is drawn out in light of this, the distinction that Yahweh announces. The Dibar will come upon Egypt, but Israel will not lose a Dabar. Just as Goshen was immune from the swarm in the fourth plague, now all the livestock of Israel will be immune from the pestilence, so that not even a single animal of theirs will perish. Verse 5. And Yahweh set a time saying, Tomorrow Yahweh will do this word in the land. Do this thing in the land. So tomorrow makes another significant appearance in uh, the plague text. And it's clearly Yahweh who will act which is in keeping with this second cycle of plagues. And the word, the thing, the dabar, will be done in the land. As mentioned at the outset, this is in keeping with this plague, the judgment coming against the the second level, the middle deck of the three-decker universe. Remember, it's uh, water, land, and sky are heavens. And so here we are in the middle deck this week with the land. But let's pause for a moment and consider the fact that Yahweh announces the plague will hit tomorrow. Now, maybe that doesn't strike us as all that interesting of a detail and just seems to be par for the course. But let's not miss the fact that this provides a window for Pharaoh to send out Israel. And it also may provide some time for the Egyptians to remove some of the livestock out of the field. Now, in saying that, I'm not say, implying that they're They were somehow able to wriggle out of God's judgment. Not at all. But in the delay of tomorrow, a mercy of sorts... That reflects a mercy of sorts on Yahweh's part, doesn't it? Quite possibly. And it would be consistent with other demonstrations of His patience, of allowing time for repentance to take place. Verse 6. And Yahweh did the word, He did the thing, this one, on the morrow, and died all the livestock of the Egyptians... And from the livestock of the sons of Israel, not one died. So the pun continues. The pestilence comes. That was the word, the thing, the dabar that he spoke, the thing he promised of what would happen the next day. And the latter half of verse 6 shows uh, the contrast between the Egyptian and Israelite livestock and even seems to be a chiasm, which you can see in the sermon notes. Died all the livestock of the Egyptians, the livestock of the sons of Israel, not one died. Now, the text is, is clear to say that all the livestock of the Egyptians died. Now, what do we do with the word all? You know, do we take it literally or as hyperbole, similarly to how we understood all the dust in the third plague? Well, one slight problem with taking all in an absolute sense is given the fact that livestock make an appearance in the seventh and tenth plagues. So perhaps the fact that there are livestock later indicates that some of the Egyptians did indeed indeed heed the warning and got some of their livestock out of harm's way. Again, could be. However, it's also helpful to keep in mind that back in verse 3 that Yahweh particularly designated livestock out in the field. And so it could very well be that we're to understand that only livestock in the field were hit with this plague. And so that livestock anywhere else was preserved. However we should understand that a significant portion of Egypt's livestock would have been wiped out in the fifth plague and so we need to be sure not to lessen the devastating effect this had on the land of Egypt. It's also possible uh, that after the fifth plague the Egyptians bought livestock from the Hebrews given the fact they didn't they didn't lose any. Could be um, an interesting theory to consider. But this plague wasn't something from which Egypt could quickly recover. You know, you don't bounce back from the majority of your livestock getting wiped out, which is, you don't bounce back quickly from the majority of your livestock getting wiped out, which is likely what happened in this case. You know, this is an event that would affect Egypt for many years, even as it takes years to establish viable livestock to sustain livelihood. So again, let's let's be sure not to shortchange in our minds and imaginations the utterly devastating effect this plague had upon Egypt. Well, that brings us to the final verse of our text this morning, verse 7. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, was not dead from the livestock of Israel one, and was heavy the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not send out the people. Uh, Notice in the first place that Pharaoh sent, which is slightly ironic since he's supposed to be sending out, The sons of Israel. Here it's probably some servants of some sort who go to Goshen and then come back with a report that indeed not a single animal of the Israelites died on account of the pestilence. And then the familiar refrain of the further hardening of Pharaoh's heart is conveyed. In this case, it's the word for heavy that we've encountered before. And of course, he did not send out the people. Now it's interesting that Pharaoh wants proof of verification that the sons of Israel didn't lose any livestock. But what does his own seeking out? Uh, What what does that prove? That Yahweh acted exactly according to the word that he delivered through Moses. Also consider that the Israelites were the shepherds, where arguably there have been a high concentration of livestock, especially herds and flocks, and yet the contagion didn't affect them at all. Once again, the evidence, the physical evidence, is staring Pharaoh in the face, and he rejects it. He won't submit. He won't bow the knee. He won't obey Yahweh's command to send out Israel in order that they may worship him in the wilderness. And something else we have to think about in relation to this pestilence, to this plague, is that you know, there, there's no undoing of it. You know, With previous plagues, it just stopped in some form or fashion, even as we recall from the first three plagues that were largely those of inconvenience. And the frogs dropped dead and they were lying everywhere and had to be cleaned up. The swarms completely disappeared after Moses interceded. And Yahweh did according to the word of Moses. The fourth plague brought desolation upon the land. But, but now death has come to the livestock and there's no reversing that. There's, there, you know, there's no resurrection of livestock that takes place. And it seems that in the fifth plague here at the halfway point, we're, we're getting a glimpse ahead to the tenth plague and the death of the firstborn. The severity of the plagues continues to increase, and death has now officially come. It's officially recorded in the text as a result of Yahweh's judgment against Egypt's idolatry and Pharaoh's disobedience. Further, if we take into account that livestock were associated with uh, fertility in Egyptian religion, then death is the opposite of fertility, of new life. And Yahweh is once again showing himself to be the only true and living God. Well, from this account, there are several other points for us to consider regarding our faith and our understanding of how God often deals with nations and people. First, consider that God's wrath toward a nation increases gradually. We've already noted this to a degree, but what's been mainly affected by the fourth and fifth plagues, but especially the fifth? Egypt's economy. Is there a sense in which economic catastrophe precedes something worse? It's certainly the case with what takes place with Egypt. And perhaps this is a generally true statement, though we should be be careful not to make it a hard and fast rule. But it would make for an interesting study to see if there isn't some sort of pattern with the decline of nations and economic woes or collapse coming first. Still, God is patient, even as we see in this text, and there's mercy subtly lined within the text, and he doesn't bring instant, absolute judgment. No, time is afforded for Pharaoh to repent and obey. And while we see this, you know, this on a macro scale, isn't this also true on a, on what we, may, what we might call the micro scale and how, um, how often God deals with us? Continuing to come with us, uh, come to us with his word, patiently bearing with us and calling us to repent and to pursue obedience, to his commands. Often he'll seek to get our attention in lesser ways, we might say, if we're paying attention, but chiefly through his word, through the proclamation of it, or even in our own reading of it. And we should understand that today is the day of repentance, because tomorrow the judgment comes, so to speak. You know, while the context of Hebrews 3 has a specific application to its original audience to continue steadfast in the faith and not head back to Jerusalem or to go over to Judaism, still there's a principle here for us to consider when the writer says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin." For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So we are to be encouraging one another in the faith that is in Christ, not led away by the deceitfulness of sin, which has many forms and manifestations, which we may encounter with some frequency on our phones or on our computers or in TV and movies, and should be aware of that and not naive about it. You know, are you being deceived? Are you being enticed away from faith in Christ? Are you being hardened against Him? If so, beware and turn afresh to Jesus in new obedience. Don't be taken away by the allure of sin, by the idols of this world, which only leads to destruction. A second point for us to consider in light of our text is that God is able to preserve his people from the effects of a calamity. Now, we have to be careful with this because there are plenty of times that God's people suffer calamity along with unbelievers. And so we don't want to fall into the mistaken notion that because a believer wasn't preserved, that he or she was somehow deficient in their faith or something like that. Not at all. However, we should still find some solace in the fact that there are cases when God brings judgment and still his people can prosper. Certainly, that's the case with Israel not losing any of their livestock. It will be the case again at the exodus itself when the Egyptians lavish costly gifts upon Israel when they depart. And so if and when we find God's blessing uh, us despite adversities in our nation or state or city or town, then that's cause for gratitude, for humble thanks, for the Lord prospering the work of our hands. Certainly not a reason for pride or boasting or elevating ourselves in any form or fashion, but a true recognition of these blessings coming from our gracious God and King. Third and finally, consider that with distinction, with being set apart as God's people, as followers of Christ, come opportunities for evangelism. You know, Yahweh made His people distinct from the Egyptians and blessed them in, midst, in the midst of adversity. And certainly opportunities arose for the sons of Israel to evangelize the Egyptians. And we know that happened based on what we read in Exodus Exodus 12.38 a mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. See, there were Egyptians who sought the protection of Yahweh, who were much quicker on the uptake than Pharaoh, who allied themselves with Israel and came under the aegis of the God of the Hebrews. And doesn't that direct us in our faith to be ready to testify of God's goodness and blessing upon us, even of the confidence we can have in the present because we confess and believe that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords and that he sovereignly rules over all things. Still more consider the distinction that we have, the, the blessings that are ours, despite trials or difficulties or even despite persecution. It still affords us an opportunity to proclaim the truth, to proclaim the gospel. And even as Peter writes to the beleaguered congregations under his care in his first letter, that should be God's will than for doing evil. More and more opportunities are coming for you to speak to the reason for the hope that you have. Despite economic difficulties that may come, despite increasing oppressive, tyrannical government overreach into your lives, despite fill in the blank. So be ready to proclaim Christ the King to live in allegiance to His Word, pursuing and doing what is good according to His commands. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we continue to give You thanks for the Word that You've given to us, even the words of Christ this day from Exodus, that they direct us anew to Him and to the life to which You call us. May Your Spirit indeed strengthen us for the life that You would have us to live in faithfulness to You, in allegiance to Christ our King, for the sake of His kingdom and your church. We ask that you would continue to be with us now and strengthen us for this service, we ask, through your service to us, as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.